Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Hello, ED ECMO. This is Zach Shiner, and this month, ah, oh, I this is going to be such a cool conversation. I have Scott Weingart, the one and only M Crit. Uh, reanimate ED ECMO. He is with us today. Scott, how are you? I'm so good. It's so great to be talking to you. I don't get to come on ED ECMO very often. Oh, man. We are, um, it's just great that we get to have this conversation. So today, um, we're going to talk about ECMO, eCPR, and maybe a little bit different about how out of hospital cardiac arrest, how these in ED arrests differ from the cardiogenic shock, the chronic CHF player, how the physiology is different, and then how our management should be even different. Scott, what? tell me about this. Yeah, you put your finger on it, Zach. And, you know, this all stems from a contrast of talking to a whole bunch of CT surgeons during my fellowship training and their opinions on eCPR, and it was a kind of dismal opinion, versus the experience we've had over seven reanimate courses now, talking to the best centers in the world for eCPR and seeing the huge difference in opinion. And, and then just my attempt to figure out why do smart people on either side have such disparate ideas? And what I came to is that uh, Barb Bartlett is talking about the fact that we're in ECMO 2.0, right? You can't uh, apply the dismal outcomes of roller pumps and horrible membranes to what we're doing now. So you should just dispense with all those ideas and start with a fresh open mindset to the benefits of ECMO. Well, I think we need an eCPR 2.0 as well. eCPR 1.0 is uh, patients whose hearts were already garbage. That's why they wound up getting crashed onto VA ECMO uh, in the midst of an arrest from, for instance, a post-cabbage or a patient in horrible cardiogenic shock. You, I don't think you could compare those patients uh, on many points to the patient who had a perfectly functional heart. They were living their life, and then they had a sudden out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah, so that, it's a, such a good point. We talked with Mark Dickstein a couple months ago about some physiologic things. Totally rocked my world as far as thinking about how do we think about the pump? How do we think about MAP? And how do we adjust for vasopressors? And... Mark is an anesthesiologist in the operating room and kind of has more experience with that type of patient. But this is different than this, than the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Is that correct? I, I think it is. I mean, all of Mark's points were absolutely astute, and I've played with a simulator, and it's brilliant. And that's where a lot of the conclusions came from, uh, from a physiologic perspective and then extrapolating to clinical practice. Um, but yet the clinical practice of the really elite eCPR centers, it's a very different world. And uh, I think, therefore, one of two things is going on. Either those physiologic models are unsound, and I don't think that's the case, or the clinical experience of eCPR are in a different set of patients that might have very different uh, physiologic modeling. And I think that's going to be the answer, is that these patients are indeed different than the ones you get in a post-cabbage or post-cardiothoracic Okay, how are they different? 
Okay, well, let's start with it. I have a list. I think I have 15 oh. of them, Zach, and I think we'll put these okay. in the show notes. Um, uh, most of them are brief, and some of them might require uh, a longer conversation, and uh, you'll be the judge of that. But the first one is, and we've already alluded to it, the patients are different. Out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients, and we can extrapolate this to as well, patients who code in the emergency department. Those patients are generally the same. And then there's a subset of in-hospital arrests that I think fit this eCPR 2.0 model. For instance, Patient who was fully functional gets admitted for a bad pulmonary embolism and then has a sudden cardiac arrest on the floor. Well, that's a that's a different patient than the patient who has an ejection fraction of 10%. So I put those patients in that same category. Uh, horrible, disastrous, you know, medication, misadministration. Patient gets a whole bunch of potassium. Their K goes up to 11. They code in hospital. Okay, that's also an eCPR 2.0 patient. But the point is that the patients we allow by our entry criteria already had good hearts and good functional status, or else we never would have included them in our eCPR uh, inclusion criteria, right? Any severe disease, severe uh, end-stage CHF, COPD, those might get eCPR 1.0, right? That severe CHF patient. They would never be included in eCPR from an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. If they had any, like, late stage severe illness, we exclude them. So our patients are better protoplasm and especially their hearts are better in eCPR 2.0 patients. So that's the first major difference. Okay. And so when we started talking, these are better hearts. We think that the ejection fraction of their hearts was, was normal just a few minutes prior to this arrest. And so now when we start talking about, I think the thing that was important to me was dilating in that map. Like, what is the appropriate map and how vasoconstrictors might have deleterious effects and how we want to maybe change it versus the flow of the machine? Do you think that that is different in the recent arrest versus the cardiogenic shock patient? I do, but that's later down on the list if you'll indulge okay. me. So, um, why don't, why don't we why put a pin in that? Because yes, that is stuff we need to talk about. But I think uh, I, I am just picturing this from the actual order that you'd see these patients in. So my next set of differences is on cannulation, if you'll indulge me, Zach. Sure. So yeah, the next set of differences. And look, I'm sure that there are some of the eCPR 1.0 centers that have adopted these same things we're going to talk about next. But these are a hallmark of every high-performing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest eCPR center that we teach that with in our course. Now, I and you'll tell me there's some exceptions. You'll tell me uh, that the folks in Paris are using a different technique. Sure, but that's because of the exigencies of their environment. In a pre-hospital realm, uh, it makes sense what Lionel and the others have done. But I think for the most part, uh, these are pretty standard. So we'll go through them. Number two is that they're, most places are using ultrasound-guided percutaneous placement for their cannulation. Now, that's game-changing in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, anyone who's done ultrasound-guided line placement realizes how ridiculous it is to go blind during percutaneous placement uh, because you start seeing that the vessels overlap and aren't where they're supposed to be on a constant basis. So, you know, Lionel's uh, cut down, fine. He's seeing the vessels directly. But I think many centers for eCPR 1.0 are doing blind percutaneous placement. And now... That leads to all of the evils of uh, VV or AA ECMO, disaster. But even if you got it right, I found, and you could tell me if you agree, Zach, 
that even when they get it, there's been numerous vascular punctures in the course of sticking it, not liking the color, ejecting the blood, going back in. And what you get is a pincushion technique. Uh, and what I find is that those patients bleed with far more prevalence than if you got the one stick kill that we're all looking for when hitting the vessels. And not only are we sticking, but we're sticking in the right place. We're actually getting just in that sweet spot below the inguinal ligament and above the bifurcation. And I think we therefore have less vascular disasters. But even more than that, we're hitting the top of the vessel. I mean, if you're doing this right, you're actually seeing your tip about to hit the vessel before you go in. So you're hitting it in the right place. And while we don't have evidence for this, the anecdotal experience of everyone we've spoken to is a dramatic decrease in disaster with ultrasound-guided percutaneous placement. Totally agree. That's a- I mean, the, the, we think this is just a nuance. It's something that's going to tick off the CT surgeons if we don't get it right. But no, this is like mortality changing stuff because if you exsanguinate, uh, there's nothing they can do. You've got to keep up those, those flows. So one stick, definitely ideal, common femoral artery. Okay. The next one I'm not as strong about, but it is a, and most of the things we're going to talk about are common factors among centers of excellence. And everyone we speak to has adopted what we teach in our course, or, well, that's the wrong way to phrase it, uh, are using the same thing we teach in our course because they were doing it before we were even teaching, uh, which is a wire choice that many CT surgeons are leery of, but we use stiffer wires during eCPR placement. And uh, that's because we're incredibly careful. The way we teach it and reanimate is actually we're not even placing those stiff wires directly into a needle. We're putting an intermediary catheter or dilator of some sort to prevent dissection and evil. But we are using stiffer wires. I think this leads to a quicker, nimbler cannulation, and therefore, we get these patients on pump sooner. I, I would agree. And you know, I've had a little bit of discussion with this over the years just because I, I think it allows us to be a little bit sloppy because of how stiff they are and, uh, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. But I agree with you, Scott, the overall advantages of those stiffer wires um, outweigh the potential downsides of not being careful with your cannulation. Yep. Now, the next one is wire location verification. Now, uh, if these patients were going on in fluoroscopy on eCPR 1.0, they had that. Um, but most of the crash eCPR for eCPR 1.0 was done in locations where there's not fluoroscopy by people, by cannulators who did not have ultrasound savvy. So they were throwing their wires in blind. And I think it's back to that same situation of AA or VV, but also the possibility of wire misplacement. And uh, we avoid that in eCPR 2.0 by using ultrasound, whether it be uh, a standard external probe or a TEE. But just putting the probe on uh, either IVC or aorta, whichever one you could find most easily, and seeing that there is indeed one wire, not zero, but also not two, before you cannulate is a game changer that, again, takes away a lot of the problems seen in eCPR 1.0. Completely agreed. Okay. The next one I think is universal amongst the centers of excellence is for eCPR, they're going, well, eCPR 2.0, these out-of-hospital cardiac arrests or similar patients, they're going with very small arterial cannulae. Now, this is very different than the way I trained. We were putting in 22 French arterial cannulae for these patients. Um, and that is a problem during cardiac arrest because we all know the veins get bigger and the arteries get smaller. And if you try to stick in an enormous arterial cannula in a vessel that can't take it, again, potential disaster. So we are accepting higher 
arterial pressures on the circuit. We're accepting maybe the possibility of less flow, but we're doing it for the avoidance of vascular disaster. So most places are putting in 15 French arterial cannulae, maybe 17 French in some centers, but no one's placing the great big ones anymore. And I think that leads to a much safer, quicker uh, cannulation. And I think you avoid disaster. I would agree as well. Okay. The next one, simpler circuits. A simple circuit is a safe circuit. We're not putting in bridges. We're not putting in uh, negative pressure side access. We are, for the most part, in the centers I've spoken to, moving to circuits for eCPR that are as simple as possible. And simpler circuits mean less disaster. These should be short-run ECMO patients. These should not be the two-weekers. These should be patients that you could get away with a very simpler circuit. And therefore, everything we're talking about is the avoidance of iatrogenic disaster. Because what we should be aiming to is just keeping these patients going until they could recover. Not long-term, short-term. So simpler circuits, safer circuits. That's number six. Yeah, I, I agree. Iatrogenic injury is real, and we have to make sure that we're actually improving the survival of these patients, especially when we're attempting eCPR early on them. So I agree with every single one of these things you just said. All right, now we move on to, you have them cannulated, we're on post-pump critical care differences. Number seven uh, is a smart out-of-hospital cardiac arrest ECMO center will search for injuries, not wait for them to present on their own, uh, which means actually getting a CT scan early on all of these patients empirically, not just because you suspect something. Um, it was published by Yiannopoulos. I mean, we've all seen it, but he actually put it into the literature. Uh, the out-of-hospital CPR process causes injuries, and knowing about them early is critical. So uh, in general, if you're not going to the cath lab, make your first stop before you go to your ICU, the CAT scanner. Or if you're going to go to the cath lab, swing by the CAT scanner before going to the ICU, and you will pick up stuff. And knowing about them now, game-changing, rather than when the patient has an enormous hemothorax and they're crashing at the bedside. So find the injuries. All right, number eight. This may be one of the most game-changing differences between eCPR 1 and 2. And everyone on, on our staff who teach at Reanimate agrees on this, Zach, and I know you do as well. Mandatory leg perfusion. Not wait to lose pulses and then start dealing with it. Not monitor and hope mandatory leg perfusion within the first few hours on every eCPR case. And this, I think there's something different about the milieu of a cardiac arrest patient um, than, than a standard VA ECMO for rescue on a patient who never lost their pulse. I think there's something going on with these patients, but we've had situations reported uh, to uh, uh, the imaginary hospitals that I've uh, associated with where uh, patients were doing great, neurologically intact, and then they die on day two from a dead leg. And that is so sad. So mandatory leg perfusion. And now that does not excuse you from the need from uh, for assiduous monitoring because sometimes they kink, they clot. So you still have to be aggressive, but you're being aggressive in your monitoring in the setting of already perfusing that leg. So some form of backflow cannula is placed very early on in the ECMO run. All right, next one, lower anticoagulation goals. In the old days, with, this, with the circuits they had, with the, with the equipment they had, uh, you needed to anticoagulate these patients hard. Uh, we're not in that era anymore. You could go much lower and therefore cut down on your bleeding rates. So lower targets for anticoagulation. All right, now this gets into the one you were talking about, Zach, number 10. 
is lower flow goals. So, yes. So, this is the thing that I think is the crux and what, Scott, I am so interested in your opinion on is how do we optimize these two competing influences or competing priorities? One being that we've got to vent the LV and the other one is that we've got to create a map that's high enough to sustain the the rest of the body. So, these two things I think are are interesting and I really want to see your opinion on how this differs from the cardiogenic shock patient. Yeah, I know this is the meat you wanted to talk about and all this rest is just fluff. But yes, we are here now. So let's get, let's make Zachy happy. So here's the deal. And this is where I think things differ from what Mark had spoken about. Classic cardiogenic shock is a vasoconstricted state. You're endogenously vasoconstricting. So trying to flog those patients with additional vasopressors is a very short-term solution to the problem. What they need is their cardiac output sucks because their heart wasn't working, and they were already at whatever low map they were at, usually maximally vasoconstricted by the body's own attempts. So you adding norepi is not the solution. Uh, They need flow. And their flow demands may be higher. I, I don't know. They're just different. But the, the milieu of a cardiac arrest, post-arrest patient, is one of vasodilation. These patients, because of the enormous SIRS response of the post-arrest, and there may be stuff intrinsic to cardiac arrest beyond just SIRS, uh, we do know absolutely that the post-cardiac arrest state for the first few days is a vasodilatory state. It looks like really bad sepsis. And as a result, it's not the same verboten idea to give these patients vasoconstrictors. You need to vasoconstrict them. Now, you don't want to over-vasoconstrict them because then you run into all the problems Mark talked about. But every single vasodilated post-arrest patient needs vasoconstrictors. Trying to make up for that for ECMO flow, I think, is setting yourself up for failure because we're putting in small cannulae and because we want a situation of partial ECMO. We want to try to avoid with everything we can uh, to put in a LV vent of some sort by keeping their afterload just enough to maintain a map to actually perfuse these patients. Now, here's the other difference. Now, this is pure conjecture, Zach. This is based on my experience. It's based on speaking to smart people, but I have zero evidence for what I'm about to tell you. But here's the deal. We know now that supporting things like the kidneys are not purely a MAP situation. It's a MAP minus CVP. It's a driving pressure idea that the kidneys, if they're exposed to a sky-high CVP, need a higher map to continue to perfuse. This is studied. I could put the uh, the literature in the show notes. But believe me, on in things like sepsis, sepsis-induced kidney injury is not purely the map. It's the map minus the CVP. It leads us to do things like keep patients dry because it means they could tolerate lower maps with good kidney function. Well, what is ECMO doing in a post-arrest patient? It's stealing all of that CVP. This is good. It means you could probably get away with a lower map and still have these organs well-supported. So now if we take these two things, just enough vasoconstrictors to make up for the cef- the uh, post-cardiac arrest-induced vasodilation, not overdoing it, but just enough. And now we don't need sky-high maps. We might be able to get away with lower maps. 60 may be the right number in a eCPR patient as opposed to a post-cardiac arrest patient without ECMO stealing their CVP. That might 
be okay. And a lot of people to avoid LV venting are keeping patients at lower MAP, lower afterload, lower ECMO flows. And as a result, the LV does eject. And then we avoid all the iatrogenesis of a vent. So what are you going to use? Well, we'd like urine output. Sometimes if it's there, it's great. But if it's not, it could just be the hit of the cardiac arrest. So we don't know. But Looking at SCVO2, looking at other kind of tissue monitors to understand, yeah, we could get away with a 63 map and not go up on the vasoconstrictors, not go up on our ECMO flow and leave them, that patient may eject when they wouldn't ordinarily do so in a patient who uh, is is needing higher demands. So this eCPR 2.0 patient, they're all getting hypothermia. That's lower down on the list. And therefore, their metabolic needs are less. And it doesn't mean you need to go to 33. We could talk about that in the neuroprognostication, but they're certainly not being allowed to be febrile. Uh, this is different in eCPR 2.0, I think. I'm not sure how many of these cardiogenic shock patients placed on VA ECMO for rescue were getting cooled. We're making sure the metabolic needs are low. We're keeping these patients sedated. So lower flow goals, partial ECMO, every center we speak to who is doing good eCPR in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is shooting for flows uh, for cardiac outputs three to four liters, letting the patient's heart do some of the work, understanding the metabolic needs are less. And therefore, these great big flows that surely will shut down a weak pre-existing cardiac dysfunction and therefore mandating event, we're not seeing them as frequently. And that brings us to the next one that ties in we're going to try to avoid venting. Now, you were at the same lecture I was, Zach, where Yiannopoulos said, we don't vent any of our eCPR, and they're all 2.0 patients. They're all out of hospital cardiac arrest. We don't vent any of them. And all of the CT surgeons in the room were like aghast. They were like, that can't be. You can't do that. We have to vent like so many of our patients. And I think it's because of all the things we just discussed. But I also think it's the watchful waiting And now this was actually studied. Truby et al. out of Columbia actually published a fantastic article, if you're an ECMO geek like me, uh, on their experience. Now, their experience was a lot of cardiac rescue that wasn't eCPR. And then they had some eCPR patients. But the eCPR patients, as far as I understand, were all rescue from cardiac disaster. So they're not the same patients we're talking about. But even in those patients, they had three categories, LVD minus, which were patients that never showed any signs of need for LV venting. LVD plus plus, which were patients who clinically needed an immediate vent because they were going into forward pulmonary edema. They look like garbage. They got an immediate vent. And then LVD plus, which were patients who had both, not just either, but both signs of pulmonary edema and elevated pulmonary artery catheter diastolic blood pressure. So the ones I think many CT surgeons would say mandatory need for venting, only six out of those 27 patients in that both already pulmonary edema, but not florid, not hemorrhagic pulmonary edema and elevated PA pressures, did they vent? The rest, they just watched and waited. And many of those patients avoided venting. So I think that the idea that, oh my God, the LA is big, we need to immediately vent these patients when everything else looks fine, a lot of those patients you get through and you avoid venting. And when you do that, you avoid all the iatrogenesis. I mean, to put in even the small impeller, you're sticking like, what is it, a 13, 14 French? 
catheter in the other side leg, and they never get backflow cannulas. I, as far as I know, I don't know anyone who's putting backflow cannulas in their um, in their impellas, and yet it's the same size as the ECMO cannula that we've just got through saying needs mandatory backflow. I think any additional hardware is setting these patients up for the possibility of not leaving the hospital alive. All right. Did I go over that stuff enough, Zach? Uh, it's, that was amazing. That was absolutely amazing. I, 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 there's so much to unpack there. Okay, so let's, let's just reiterate. Um, able to tolerate no lower MAPs because we have a lower CVP because of the ECMO venous cannula that is decreasing it on that side. And I think most of these patients don't have the pre-existing kidney disease that comes with being 80, with being end-stage CHF or in cardiogenic shock from that pathway. These patients had functional organs before we got here, so I think they could tolerate it from that perspective as well. And this is improving our flows through the brain and through the heart as well. I mean, it's not just the, the kidneys. We're, doing, we're having benefits all over the place. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we'll get to it on the next one. Uh, but these patients, their hearts could probably take flogging a little better. And we didn't mention that, but that's another reason we could get away with lower flows and lower maps from vasopressors because we're going to make their heart do a little work if we can. We're going to try and avoid these very invasive procedures. Impella being one, balloon pumping another, septostomy being another one. These things, like you said, just are adding complication to a patient that the simpler you can make it, the faster you can get them out of that, the better. Yes? Absolutely correct. Okay. So that that's fantastic. I think there's a little bit more in there we'll probably come back to. But now let's – we've mentioned this idea that we can sustain a lower map. We can tolerate some more vasopressors. Take me through it. The guy just had a cardiac arrest. He's just got put on ECMO. I've got some decisions to make as far as titrating to a map, titrating to a flow. Okay, so let's just put them up whatever we could get at the very beginning, right? You know, we'll wash out um, their their evils that happened during the cardiac arrest. So, you know, if if with your uh, particular size cannulae, uh, you could you could get four and a half, five liters, knock yourself out, take it, right? Why not? But very soon into it, we want to see, are we getting some degree of LV ejection? And that means putting the patient in a rhythm that's going to be possible to do so. And that might or might not happen until after they get a cath if they had enormous LAD. But most of these patients, you get them into a rhythm pretty soon. Once they get on ECMO, you could shock them and they do shock out. And then are you getting... Uh, a pulsatile waveform on your arterial line? Are you getting uh, some degree of opening of your aortic valve? And if you are, great. Uh, but if you're not, it could be that your flows are too high and maybe try dialing back. Now, you also at the same time are looking at the patient's map and we want a reasonable map. Um, you know, before we get more advanced numbers, uh, we probably want a map of at least 65. And if these patients are already in the midst of their service response, that means just put them on norepi. Or if you like vaso, put them on vaso and then add in norepi if you need it. I don't care. But just uh, with the combination of a reasonable degree of flow. And then whatever it takes on your vasopressors to get a reasonable map, you should on these eCPR 2.0 patients be in a very good place. And then later on, ask yourself, do we need as much flow if they're not ejecting? And we don't need a lot. We just need them to open their aortic valve every now and then to keep the distension down. And most importantly, and this was a revelatory to me, but it turns out that even if your LV and LA are not dilated, but there's no opening of the aortic valve, even with anticoagulation, these patients are still 
building clot in their aortic outflow tract, that there is a type of clot that is resistant to anticoagulation in that area for whatever reason. And so even if there's not the distension, they need to occasionally be opening their aortic valve or they're set up for intracardiac clot. And that is a horrible situation because now we need them mandatorily to not eject or else we risk stroke. So now we have the situation of mandatory LV venting, all sorts of evil. So Avoiding that however possible. And if that means we need to go down on our ECMO flow, as long as we still have markers like the patient's SVO2 showing us that at least overall on a global level, they're still getting good perfusion, then we'll do it. And obviously, we're going to add on inotropes. You're not whipping that same horrible dead heart of an eCPR 1.0 patient. These hearts are okay, but they are stunned. And this is where this brings us to number 12, unless you have other stuff you want to talk about there, Zach. No, I well, I do want to kind of come back to this because this is where I think my understanding of the whole physiology isn't quite there. So if, uh, if I have two main priorities, that is perfusion of the body and ejection of the heart, at least occasionally, then in some ways they're against each other. So I got my eCPR patient they got into arrest. We put them on ECMO. We put in our right radial art line. We're now getting our maps off of that line. I went, uh, as you said, I went up on my flows as much as I can get. Let's say I'm getting four liters of flow. I'm still a bit hypotensive, so I add some pressors on. Now I'm able to maybe titrate it down or maybe even get my echo and look to see if it's ejecting. So my question, and this is what we talked about with Mark too, and I still don't really have my hands around it, is in order to get that heart to eject, it's got to have some end diastolic volume. And according to Starling curves, that means we got to have at least enough to optimize it. Is there a place or how do we put those two together and say, I got to have some blood going through the heart, even give it a chance to eject? Well, that's going to happen no matter what. So you have your Thrabesian veins, your bronchial veins, and those are going to give uh, blood flow back to the LV. But if we're going partial ECMO like we're doing in most of these eCPR 2.0 patients, there still is returning blood to that right heart that should get to the left. And uh, so that is usually not the problem. Uh, your nidus for ejection should be there. The problem usually is that you look down and they're on five and a half liters of flow and you've dialed in your norepi and you look up and your map is 85. Well, that patient's heart's not going to eject, at least during their cardiac stun period. So that's the thing is get them down to a reasonable map. And this is the key to what understanding, uh, you know, conceptualizing what Mark was saying versus what I'm saying is he's saying, don't take a patient and over vasoconstrict them to get the map you want and instead do it with ECMO flow. We're saying the same thing. The difference is in his patients, the cardiogenic shock patients, uh, they're already at a vasoconstricted or at least not vasodilated state. So for you to try to get the map up in those patients with vasopressors is completely counterintuitive. It doesn't work. But in our patients, we're merely bringing them down to a little bit vasodilated as opposed to the grossly vasodilated they would be otherwise. So we're not using our pressors to get excess map. We're using our pressors to bring them back to a normal vascular tone so that the low and yet good amount of flow coming from the ECMO pump and hopefully the patient's heart is more than enough to perfuse the body. Okay, so I, that's very helpful. Uh, what I'm hearing is that I've got this patient, they've got a, a high map and I don't have ejection. What I should do in my eCPR patient is maybe go down on the ECMO flows rather than going down on the vasopressor. 
it's hard. It's hard. I mean, uh, because you, you never know which one is giving you too much. But I, I think a nice number is I think most, and look, Zach, I'm going to say this and then anyone smart is going to tell me I'm an idiot because uh, I'm just doing it the wrong way. But we, we look at our, our flows, you know, which are surrogates of cardiac output. Uh, and we don't actually look at it in terms of the body surface area. We should be using the ECMO flow as an index. And then what I'm going to say is going to make sense. But I'm going to say it anyway, because in real life, at least early on, this is the way I'm playing. Um, look, most of these patients should be on about four liters flow, right? Um, until they show you otherwise. And at that point, if the map is still too high and they're on vasopressors, they don't need the vasopressors. Pull back on the vasopressor. Uh, if on the other hand, um, they're on five and a half liters of flow and they're on, you know, three micrograms of norepi and they're not ejecting. See what happens when you lower the flow instead. All right. So important point, I think, for all of us is ejection of the heart is important. Be looking for it in even right after your cardiac arrest. Yes. Or at least definitely. maybe an hour or so after the you yeah, you, you definitely want them ejecting within the first few hours. Um, but, you know, at, but the other side of the coin is just as important, which is uh, if there is LV distension of a little bit, there are things that can be done prior to moving to a vent. And I think the Truby study shows it. And some of the letters to the editor were even more adamant. Uh, I think it was somewhere in uh, the Norwegian regions, but I could be misremembering. But they wrote a letter saying, uh, we, we love the idea, but you're probably even venting too much because we avoid all venting. Like in you know the last 200 runs, they vented one patient or something like crazy like that. And that's right there with Yiannopoulos, right? He says he didn't have to vent any of his patients. Um, now, I, I, I'm sure there was provisos there, but the point is, don't be so quick to throw in an impella. It's not a free ride. Super cool. Okay, so maybe we'll come a little bit back to that, but the next point here that we're trying to look at is this idea of this heart is going to be stunned for a while. So don't prognosticate on it on day two of the ECMO run and say, this patient has an ejection fraction of 10%, and so we might as well pull the plug. And I know this happens at places uh, because, uh, you know, they're, they're saying this heart was already crappy at baseline in the ECPR 1.0 patients. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think they're a VAD candidate, so there's nothing for us to do. Let's start hanging crepe and telling the family that we don't think this is going to work out. You can't do that on an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. These patients' hearts look horrible for the first few days and then boom they're back and now if you don't believe me look at Yiannopoulos's data and not the original article not the you know boom we we have amazing rates of salvage on uh, neurologically intact look at the second article that went into all their critical care and you can look at the graphs horrible ejection fraction for the first few days and then the hearts come back online and they're functional hearts so the point is don't look at heart on day two day three and say Forget it. Because we know this from the critical care world. If in the minds of the intensivists, they say to themselves, this ain't going to work out, it colors their entire way of dealing with that patient. And patients you think are not going to work out die. And then it becomes a self-perpetuating philosophy because you prognosticated that they're not going to do well. So you stop caring. You stop being ultra aggressive. And then, of course, they die. And then that makes the next patient situation even worse because you, you start falsely honing your prognostication. So the key is for the first three, four, even five days, don't cardiac prognosticate on an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So good. I mean, it. you just look at the, the, the institutions where the person that owned the patient at the beginning is also owning the patient in the ICU. Amazingly, the prognosis goes up. 
Well, you, you, you're foreshadowing number 14, but we'll get there. Oh, yes. Okay. So yeah, and then the same thing goes for the brain as well, yeah? It's even worse because, you know, the heart takes a few days to come back online. But what we know, and I, I know this especially having run an out-of-hospital non-ECPR cardiac arrest program, is um, people are making neuroprognostication all the time uh, based on things that are completely wrong by the evidence. These patients, unless they're showing signs of brain death or dismal markers or MI, MRI findings, cannot be neuroprognosticated. They cannot be looked at and said, ah, this patient's not doing much. Their GCS is still low. Forget it. And and then you, again, you get in that mindset of they're not going to make it, so you stop doing aggressive stuff. These patients can look like crap neurologically for nine days and then walk out, to, you know, on the, you know, they're walking on their own two feet and going back to their jobs. Now, this needs to be understood or it needs to be taken over by an aggressive post-cardiac arrest neurogroup who's going to say, you're not allowed to make neuroprognostication. And this is key. Every good eCPR program is using a actual algorithm for neuroprognostication. They're not going by Gestalt because Gestalt is always wrong in a post-cardiac arrest patient. It gets worse, Zach, if you actually cooling to 33. Because, and this is a contention now finally backed up by a little bit of evidence. But my belief is that when we cool to 33, 32 to 34, we're actually inducing a hibernation state. And you'll hear all of these 33 advocates tell you, oh, no, 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 you can't use 36 because I had a patient I cooled to 33 and 28 days later, they woke up and were neurologically intact. And they are trying to tell me that wouldn't have happened at 36. And what I always tell them back is, no, they didn't wake up until the 28-day mark because you cooled them to 33. If you cooled them to 36, they would have the same neuro outcome, but they would have woken up on day seven. So the point is, if you're cooling to 33, it gets even worse. You can't prognosticate for a long, long time. Now, it doesn't mean we're keeping these patients on ECMO. Get them off as soon as humanly possible. But it means ship them to a unit that is willing to be in it for the long hall and not pull the plug on day eight because they're still not waking up. Great points. Great points. And the idea of true hibernation. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about that before here. There is this whole idea, you know, how cold is really cold. And, and I agree that, that we have got to delay our prognostication, both in the cardiac standpoint and the neurologic standpoint. If you want to have a successful ECMO program, you've got to be vested with the people upstairs, especially if you're talking about out of hospital cardiac arrest. If you're not owning the patient's you better work on that relationship because that's going to be the key to the success of your program. Now, I mean, we'll go a step further on number 14. And I think you are the only outlier, uh, Sharp, in that the people doing the eCPR 2.0 at the beginning are not the same people owning them. Now, the reason you guys get away with it with amazing rates is your people upstairs are great, both in cardiothoracic surgery and in your ICU. So you're lucky. But in every other center of excellence, the people doing everything else we've spoken about are also the people who are, with an incredible degree of barriership, owning these patients and preventing any other service from making decisions on these patients that could go against everything we've just spoken about. So they are like mother wolves, territorially staking out these patients and therefore not allowing bad stuff to happen. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we are a bit unique in that. I hope that we still have some of that wolf mentality when we go up to the ICUs and see them every single day. But it's totally true. You've got to be fully vested with those ICU docs or with your cardiothoracic surgeons. They have to be on the same page uh, to say that we're going to give these people time. 
And yep. one of the things that also is, if you're starting a program, one of the things is that first save. Like when you get that first save and your ICU nurses, because don't, don't underestimate the influence of your ICU nurses. Absolutely. That they see someone that they have seen time and time again being pronounced dead walk out of the hospital. It's a, it's a big deal. And so those types of things, you if you do get a save, you've got to use it and sh- make sure that the people that were involved see this as a different patient than that cardiogenic shock patient that languished in the ICU for several months and then eventually died. These Zach, are different people. You've just picked number 16, which I don't have on the list. And we have to add, that's so brilliant. Every center of excellence parades their patients to the staff that work so hard on them. Every that, Now that you mention it, I'm like, of course, that's so obvious. Thank you for pointing out. That needs to be on the list. That is a marker of eCPR 2.0, is showing the success to every person in the chain that made it happen. And all of the centers of excellence are doing that. I think is another thing for us here is that we've realized, I mean, this is not even false, you know, just falsely um, glorifying people, but the techs, the nurses in the ER, they made a huge difference on whether this patient survived or not. And so getting it back to them, which sometimes can take some work to get to find that nurse, to make sure that they can see the patient and like that types of stuff is just, it's huge for the culture of your department. All right. That brings us to the last one on my list, uh, which is in it for the long haul. Now we've talked about this in all sorts of different places during this discussion, but uh, these patients, uh, their ECMO runs may be short in many cases, but their ICU time, their rehab time in the hospital um, can be long. It's not always. Sometimes you get the patient two days on ECMO, decannulate, they go home on day four. Great. But you have to be willing if you want to get the really good numbers, if you want to get up to 50% neurologically intact survival, be in it for the long haul. These patients sometimes will take a lot of work. And if your hospital's not on board for that, then uh, you might as well not be doing it. Amazing, Scott. I'd like to ask you a couple more questions. This is yeah. going back yeah, yeah, to yeah. the physiology stuff. Because you you actually represent a unique person that has this amazing, you know, ER knowledge, ICU knowledge, ECMO knowledge, and the data from all of them sometimes can get confounded. So I, I want to ask you just a couple of things as far as, as management styles. We're, we've talked already about uh, flows and we, there's none of this is data. There, we're not going to have data to back up these statements, but, but you are the best person to give us an estimate. Uh, to- I, I am a person <laughs> and I, I, I'll, I'll try to answer, but I am not the best person. Uh, we should get, we should get Amy or Janelle on here, but I, I will give it my best shot. Okay. So how about the first one? Hemoglobin. We talked about in, in, in these sick patients in the IC want to get a hemoglobin of seven. Is that what you're using in your, in your ECMO patients? You know, Bob Bartlett's going to come and kill me, Zach. You know, you're, you're putting me in, in dire straits here. But yes, I think we could accept lower targets. Now, uh, what do we have as best ICU evidence? We have that in almost every patient, seven's the right number. In a patient with STEMI, eight seems to be the right number. So I think it's somewhere in there. It's somewhere between seven and eight is your ideal. Now, this is, again, the avoidance of iatrogenesis because we know you get increased oxygen carrying capacity and you're multiplying the effects of your ECMO flows by more hemoglobin, but you're also exposing the patient to, uh, and we know 
Uh, it's actually death-inducing. Giving blood products, everyone you give, increases the patient's mortality. Is that infection? Probably. Is that uh, making the hormonal milieu worse? Probably. Um, so I think seven to eight is your number until you're having problems matching the patient's perfusion demands with whatever flow you're capable of getting. Whether that means you can't go higher because the LV you want to check, well, then maybe that patient should get a vent and allow you to go higher. Or it's just the actual limits of the cannulation setup you have. Um, then there may be a role to go a little bit higher on the hemoglobin. But you are accepting a a, a lower uh, flow characteristic of the actual um blood plasma itself, right? The more hemoglobin goes up, the the uh, more difficult it is to pump. So, you know, there's all these trade-offs, but I think for most patients, seven to eight is your number. Seven to eight is the number. And then we talk about hyperoxia as being bad. And we all, we have this, this right radial art line that we're trying to like look to see if the coronaries, what kind of oxygenation they're getting there. We talk about the place where the ejection from the, the native heart is meeting the ECMO flows going retrograde up the aorta and maybe there's some mixing in there. Do you think that there's ever an idea that we should treat this hyperoxia badness that we do with other cardiac arrest different with ECMO patients and maybe go up on the on the oxygenation of the ECMO blood simply because we don't know what the coronary oxygenation is? Well, uh, you know, it, it's not going to help you that much to go okay. up on the ECMO oxygenation because um, it, it's if the coronaries are being exposed to a Harlequin syndrome situation, then they're not going to see that ECMO blood. That's our whole problem. Even low oxygen states on ECMO should give you well into the PaO2 ranges you need to 100% saturate the hemoglobin. The problems you run into is when the blood is going through the native lungs. And so where you will probably need to maintain a high oxygen and high FiO2 is on the patient's ventilator. Because uh, once they start perfusing through their lungs, that's the actual oxygenation situation they're going to be seeing. And unless you switched over to something like, you know, VAV. Uh, but other than that, that's where I think, and this is my personal opinion, is I think we should be moderating, we should be limiting the hyperoxia on the ECMO side. And we should, pro I run all of my patients on 100% on the ventilator until I am getting hyperoxia despite going down on the ECMO uh, oxygen blender. And that's telling me that the lungs are working natively and therefore uh, I can pull back. But until that point, I like to run an FiO2 of 100% on the patient's um, uh, on the patient's ventilator uh, so that when they do start getting that right heart pumping a reasonable amount of blood, you know, we're on partial ECMO flow and that those lungs are coming back online, that I'm not going to get that situation of Harlequin um, and, and or at least, you know, avoid it to some degree. Now, uh, I am also recruiting those native lungs empirically at the very beginning. I am keeping recruited lungs so that then when they do come online, it's not a situation of an irreversible de-recruitment. So I like these patients on PEEP from the get-go, and I like to keep them on high FiO2s. And that's the way I'm going to avoid having hypoxia of the coronaries and brain. And the way I'm going to avoid overall hyperoxia is by keeping the ECMO flow oxygen low. Now, when I was training on VV, we would just always run everyone on 100% for VV ECMO. Um, but I think on a post-arrest VA ECMO eCPR patient, uh, you should avoid hyperoxia. And that's the way to do that is put them on a blender with, with some alacrity and get those PAO2s down. 
So good. So good. Okay, so let me just sum this up, see if I can do it and, and check me where I'm wrong here. All right. I'm in the ER. I've got a cardiac arrest patient. They're, you know, a recent arrest. Let's call it a, a, a STEMI. We put them on ECMO. We've got now some flows. I immediately put in a right radial art line. I'm not changing anything until I get some data. So I'm going to go maximize my ECMO flows as much as I can get out of the cannulas that I put in. Um, I'm very quickly getting that right radial outline. I'm getting a map. I now have a map. After I have that map, I'm going to titrate that using, because I've already got maximized flows, I'm going to now start titrating in levofed. Uh, look, I'm not going to go into this debate, but for me, yes, I like norepi. Uh, Vaso is a very nice one to have sitting in the background there. I think it's it's good in a lot of ways. So if you want to put on vasopressin 0.04 sitting there and then titrate norepi if you need it, that's fine too. Okay, so uh, vasopressor of choice. I am now titrating my map up to something around 65. If I get too high, I know that this is bad. So do not go too high on on my maps from my right radial art line. I am then getting my ultrasound machine sometime thereafter, looking at the heart, seeing if it's ejecting. If it's not ejecting at all, then um, depending on where my map is, I'm going to start trying to decrease that map. That might be initially with taking the flow down on the ECMO machine to see if I can get it to eject that way, knowing that the reason we do not, we need LV ejection is that thrombosis occurs and distension can be a nightmare for us to deal with later on. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and you know, you, you want this to be black and white, but it's not going to be because uh-huh. uh, you have two choices. And if your flows are five and a half, six liters and your norepi's at two, I would go down on flow even early on because I don't think they need that much flow in an eCPR 2.0 patient. If on the other hand, I was at three and a half and uh, the epi's at 40, well, we know which one needs to go down in order to allow LV ejection. Um, And of course, very rarely is it this far on either side. But the point is, yeah, you have to just use your judgment as to whether to go down on flow or to whether to go down on your norepi or whatever vasopressors you're using. But the point is, we want them just at the bare normal in terms of their vascular tone, or maybe even a little vasodilated, that's going to help flow characteristics. Uh, We might accept the low end of maps, and we're going to take just enough flow from the ECMO pump to support the metabolic needs of the patient's organs. And so on either side, we're not going to over-vasoconstrict. It's not a cardiogenic shock patient who are already vasoconstricted. These patients usually need some vasopressors, and we're not going to go crazy on the flow. So partial flow ECMO and just enough vasoconstrictors to get vascular tone back to near normal. Amazing. Okay, so last thing, we are going to do that right radial ABG. We're going to get a PAO2. We're going to look for north-south syndrome. Scott mentioned we are going to optimize our pulmonary uh, oxygenation 100% initially. We are going to try and with a blender titrate down the ECMO oxygenation and, uh, and then shoot for a way that we are continuing to recruit the alveoli throughout the process, even if they're not using, if they're totally using ECMO support. Yep. That sounds about right. <sighs> Scott, I mean, that was. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was a spectacular episode. Zach, I can't thank you enough for uh, persisting on getting this show done because it made me actually write this stuff down and, and actually put my thoughts in a more understandable form. And now I look at it and I'm like, I'm so glad I did this with you, buddy. Scott Weingart, enough said. Thank you. ED ECMO, signing out.